This is Channel 253. You can ring my shame bell. I'm Marguerite, and I want you to move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. You'll like it. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Dot com. All right, so thanks everybody for coming. Um, I just wanted to kick off um, by doing the routine things that we always do. Thanks very much to Pacific Brewing for hosting us tonight and for doing your best to keep up with us at the bar. We know that's no small thing. Um, Next slide, please. Uh, this is the crew, uh, Hope Teague Bowling. She will be running the shame bell this evening. Uh, Nate Bowling will be moderating. Lindsay Stevens will be asking for your questions. Uh, these are our technicians, Doug, who clearly knows how to turn on a microphone. Uh, Adam Weigel, who's not wearing a bow tie, but is wearing a very sassy hat, who is handling um, all of our live streaming needs. This is available, and is also available to be hired for your live streaming needs. And Matt Martinez, who's not here uh, with KNKX, and they've provided just an incredible amount of advice and support for us. We always like to shout them out and thank them. Next slide. Thanks to uh, Channel 253, uh, which sponsors this event and pays for our technicians. If you haven't had a chance to check out all the podcasts, they will make your brain very large. Uh, obviously, my podcast, Move to Tacoma, is amazing. Um, Nate's podcast, uh, Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma with Jenny Jacobs, the Flounders B-Team podcast, if you're interested in Sounders stuff, uh, Interchangeable White Ladies podcast, hosted by Hope, if you want to be a more woke white person. Uh, Taco Man, uh, hosted by a mysterious local superhero who reveres tacos in Tacoma. And Crossing Division, which is our latest show, hosted by Justin Camarada and Jones's husband, Dave Jones, who has his own identity. And um, also uh, Julie Anderson. So please uh, check those out. And without further ado, I just want to say thank you so much for being here uh, and engaging uh, on the Twitter feed. It's time for Nate Bowling, who has so generously dressed like Mr. Rogers tonight. Anyway, so I, I want to thank you all for being here tonight for an important conversation. Uh, given events in our community, we decided to have tonight's happy hour about white supremacist organizations operating here in the Washington state area. Uh, I've had a couple of events recently that remind me of how real this is. Uh, this weekend, actually, I was in Tennessee, and I decided to go for a drive in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is basically like the five-mile drive in Point Defiance, but the size of Pierce County. And so I'm driving, and you know, within five minutes, I see some, like, a, 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 what is it? What's the word for a flock of turkeys? Anybody know? A, a rafter of turkeys. And I'm like, all right, wild turkey. Yeah, it's a rafter. I didn't make it up. It's real. Uh, and then I saw a dude fly fishing, and it was like a river runs through it. And I was like, wow, that's really amazing. And then I saw the Confederate-themed doom buggy bumping Wu-Tang Clan. And so, like, <laughs> the dissonance there is real. And one of the things that's just really, really true to me right now is in this moment in American history, uh, we've made a ton of progress. Um, and by the way, I want to just make a point here. Oftentimes folks say that like black folks have made progress. Black folks didn't make progress. We've always not been the problem. Like we've societally made progress, okay? And I feel like in this, in this particular political moment that progress is under threat. And it's under threat from groups all over the country. And we in the Northwest like to paint ourselves as being progressive and not being that problem, not having that problem. But we are that problem, we have that problem. And so to kick tonight off, I'm actually gonna have a friend of mine come up. Uh, my realtor, my friend, 
a person with a, what did you say, a personality of their own, identity of their own, uh, Ann Jones, is going to come up and she's going to share a story that she shared uh, with me a while back. So, Ann? Hi. We didn't actually discuss this story much. Hello, Steve. Um, so we were just talking about white supremacy and sort of the p places it pops up. And for many people, you don't think about it in your day-to-day -day interactions. And it's actually kind of fun that John and Kate are here since we just uh, intersected on our vacation, our spring break vacation. But one of the things that I mentioned is that for us, for our family, uh, the aforementioned Dave Jones, who is not here because he's at home with the kids tonight, um, happens to be a tall, handsome black man. We have two sons who are uh, 8 and 12. And my family's from Montana originally. And so my parents are amazing people, um, very, very involved in our life and our kids' lives. But we went back to Montana. I wanted to be sure that Dave got a chance to meet my uh, grandpa before he died. I thought it was probably important for both of them and uh, important for my grandpa to get to hold our oldest son. And on the way home, you know, we stop in Coeur d'Alene because as a kid growing up, we stop all the time, and, and it doesn't, it's not that bad, it's not that bad. Um, but it's, you know, it's a place that my family, in all the trips and travels that we went to Montana, because that's where I got to go on vacation as a child, was Montana, uh, which a lot of John Frazier thinks is a nice place to spend time. <laughs> um, we, you know, that's where we traveled, because that's where my grandparents were. So it was normal to me to stop. And you all think, many, many people think of Coeur d'Alene as this idyllic sort of lake where you go and you vacation and you go on a houseboat and it's so amazing. And we go and we stop, I think for just an overnight, and we go to the beach and um, the boys are little. Wilson's little. Taylor's a baby, I think. But anyway, you know, there's people on the beach shirtless and swastikas, like, on arms. And um, I think now about, like, if I went back there. So, of course, I'm protective of, of Dave because that's the mode that you move into and you're, there's a level of discomfort. But I think now about when we travel with our kids and we go places and we choose vacation spots that we are comfortable. You know, people will be like, eh, you're fancy. You don't do the outdoors. Well, you know what? We don't comfortably travel to a lot of rural places like Nate's describing because that's just not, it's not the same experience as it is for some of my friends. And so I'm happy that uh, as my son is now in middle school, you know, as our boy is growing up and he's learning about history and understanding more about things like the Nazis, I think about being on a beach somewhere with somebody who's got a big swastika on his arm and having to have that conversation with him. And I think about last year when white supremacy flags popped up in Fircrest, where we live, and my son was starting his first year of middle school. And Wilson Jones used to rock the biggest afro. I'm talking about like eight to nine inches. It was awesome. And it crossed my mind at a certain point in time that I wonder if I should cut his hair because he has to walk back and forth in front of this man's house on his way to school. And of course, I would never do that. But that brief moment, because all you want to do as a parent is protect your child, all you want to do. And you think, like, what could I do to make sure that he's not singled out? He's tall and sweet and... Uh, Anyway, the fact that that even had to cross my mind or that we have to consider where we go on vacation, it's just a part of our life. And I think for a lot of people, it's not. And so I would ask you to kind of keep that in mind. Um, I'm not sure exactly what you can do about that other than be really aware. So. So we're going to move to the program part now. Uh, really fast, some reminders. Well, actually, let's back up. If this is your first Adult Civics Happy Hour, raise your hand. Oh, yeah. nice. Way to come out. Way to come out. All right. 
Adam, do I need to move in a little bit or? Okay, so some things that we do here. One, it's happy hour, do you. If you need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. If you need a beverage, get a beverage. We are gonna ask if you're having a side conversation that you actually not have a side conversation, please, because uh, just this room is echoey and delightful, delightful, delightful. So thank you in advance for not doing that. All right, thing two, if you have questions, we're gonna ask you to not shout out questions mid-conversation. We have two ways of submitting questions. Around the room, there are index cards. Please point to the index cards where they're at in front of you. So there's some over here, some there, some there, some there, some there, okay? So after our kind of discussion part, we'll do a Q&A. If you have a question, write it on index card and get either a Hope or Lindsay's attention, and they'll, they'll curate those because uncurated Q&As are terrible. Um, if you're feeling fancy and all like millennial and Gen Z or late Gen X and want to tweet your questions, that's great too. So tweet your questions using hashtag uh, ACHH253. If you want to live tweet the event, because our normal live tweeter Grant and Kenny aren't here, that's great too. Uh, there's also a Facebook live stream, so if you are still using Mark Zuckerberg's suck machine, uh, you can go on Facebook and share that video with other people, that'd be great. If you share it, more people see it. Honestly, no shade here. Actually, all shade here. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is, is the shame bell. Uh, this is a jargon-free conversation. Go ahead. This is a jargon-free conversation. And so I'm gonna, I've warned our experts to please refrain from jargon. But if there's some jargon, they'll ring the shame bell. Oh, now you don't wanna ring it, fine. Great. And then we'll ask for an explanation of the terminology that was used, the acronym or whatever. So, Stephen, next slide, please. Our guests. So our first guest is Craig Saylor. He's a reporter for the News Tribune. And the trip doesn't have like beats, but if there was a white supremacist beat, he'd be on that beat. <laughs> Not because he, never mind, that's, just shut up. All right. <laughs> because, never mind, I'm just gonna just bail out of that. Uh, and next we have Miri. And so Miri is the regional director for the Anti-Defamation League. And she came down from Seattle and bared awful, awful traffic to be here. So let's welcome them. Welcome them up. And then I need to find my beverage. Give me a moment, please. Are you going to get me a Okay. Definitely not. Uh, I would like to just start by having each one of you tell your story of how you became the person whose job it is to either study or report on white supremacist activity. Uh, it's not on. It's, it's on. You're good. It's in, okay, all right. Um, I've been a journalist since the mid-1980s. I first started as a photographer. And uh, back in those days, we had a... Uh, a lot of anti-gay initiatives, which proceeded to blanket the country for the next couple of decades, including here, as we all know. Uh, but there was a gentleman by the name of Lon Maybon, who was an Oregon uh, initiative pusher, who came down to Nevada and tried to uh, get some, uh, uh, you know, gays or perverts, lock them up, whatever it was. I, I, I'm. I'm exaggerating, of course, but it was it was anti-gay initiatives that he was trying to to get on the ballot. <laughs> um, all right, all right. Um, I, as a photographer back in those days uh, and before social media and all that, uh, lots of sources were um, 
more open to speaking to me, you know, sort of off the record. And I, I was able to get an ear for uh, how these people operated, and which I'll get into more later. Um, after I came here to Washington in the late 90s, I slowly switched over to editing and then writing. Uh, I've always had a, a big interest in race issues and diversity and just covering marginalized uh, people. I'm a gay man myself, uh, so I have a, an affinity for people who are not of the mainstream. Um, and I really uh, am interested in uh, groups that uh, organizations or people who try and suppress other people. So uh, at the News Tribune, we have a, we've, we're quite a bit smaller than we were a while back. Um, and uh, generally uh, race-themed or uh, white supremacy, white nationalist, um, minority, whatever you want to, you know, that whole genre, all the genres fall into uh, my category of coverage. And I, I appreciate being called an expert. Uh, I am an expert on journalism. I wouldn't consider myself an expert on this subject. That I Fake it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having me today. Um, I always grew up on the West Coast, but I had been living in Washington, D.C. for the past 10 years. So I um, was working for a member of Congress and then at a number of different advocacy organizations related to women's issues and women's health, and most recently for former Congresswoman Gabby Gifford's gun safety group as her federal affairs director. So. I had been wanting to move back to the Seattle area to be closer to family, and I think after the events in Charlottesville, like you were so eloquently saying, I think I, you know, my eyes were really awoken to so much of the vitriol and the hatred that has been going along for so long, um, but really in recent times has just feels like it's so much stronger and more out there than ever. And as a mom to a young daughter who's 16 months old, I really wanted to work at an organization where I could do something meaningful to stop hate and discrimination. And the opportunity at the Anti-Defamation League popped up. And I was really excited and leaned in. And I've been at the job for about five months now. So I'm new to the role and new to the area, but excited for the conversation today. I'm going to ask both of you just try to eat that microphone. Just, just get okay. up on it. Okay. Uh, Mary, can you talk about what the ADL is and the work that you all do? Sure. So the Anti-Defamation League is a national civil rights nonprofit. We have been around since the 1900s. In 1913, we were founded. We've always been um, an organization that's mission is twofold, one of which is to stop the defamation of the Jewish people. The organization was created when anti-Semitism was really rampant in the United States. States, and there needed to be a really strong presence to stop the discrimination of the Jewish community. But I think the founders and their wisdom of the organization, the second part of our mission is to stop the defamation of all people and secure fair and just treatment for everybody. So I think there was always a recognition that for people to be accepted, we really had to all be in this together. And there was a sense of unity in fighting hatred and discrimination. So. 
can I tell you a little bit about what we do here? Of course. Does that sound good? So we kind of do our work in three buckets. We're a national organization, but we represent the Pacific Northwest. So we actually have five states in our region, including Washington State and some of our neighboring states. So we do education work in K through 12 schools. We have an amazing program that we bring to schools around our region called No Place for Hate. We really try to get kids involved at an early age. And I know we have a lot of amazing educators in this in, in the room today to really give kids hands-on tools to talk about bias and discrimination or whatever they're facing, bullying, racism. And we work with them to bring them hands-on trainings and give them tools to call out, you know, jokes or harassment when it happens. And they do school-wide projects that get them the designation as a no place for hate school. So they get a banner and they're really excited about working towards this important project. We also are the largest non-governmental trainer of law enforcement in the country. So we train law enforcement on implicit bias, on hate crimes. I'll talk a lot today about our work with law enforcement into um, how we educate them and connect with them um, about hate groups in the area. And then third, we do a lot of civil rights advocacy, whether it's on immigration reform or LD LGBT um, rights. Um, so it kind of runs the gamut, but that's in a nutshell what we do here. Craig, when I Googled white supremacist Tacoma and white supremacist Washington State, your byline came up a bunch of times. So that's a good thing. Like, that's like, like gold star, gold star, gold star. Uh, could you talk about some of the stories you've covered here locally about white supremacy and neo-Nazi organizations? Well, the most recent one, and I, I, I printed it out, I have it in my pocket here, uh, because I like to get my facts straight when I'm reporting. and and uh, in the public here. But um, there is a group, and Mary, I was talking to her, uh, we were just speaking before we started here, and she's familiar with this group. Um, it's called uh, Identity Europa, right? They spell it strange, but. Um, so uh, in March, just last month, a bunch of this white Europa uh, propaganda was found both on uh, Tacoma Community College as well as the University of Washington campuses in the form of posters, stickers, uh, calling cards. Uh, this group, um, it, it states that its membership is for people of European heritage, which, uh, you know, in a lot of this, um, a lot of this uh, genre of groups, they, they try and like, um, I don't know, uh, Whitewash? Yeah, use 25 cent words when what they really are just wanting to say is white people. But European heritage just sounds so much more elegant, I guess. Um, they have an anti-immigration stance, an anti-Muslim message. Uh, they recently attended the uh, Conservative Political Action Conference that was also attended by President Trump. Uh, so uh, yeah. Uh, so these posters showed up, and, the, and the other, this group has also uh, distributed some posters in Gig Harbor in November, as well as Eastern Washington. They appear on college campuses. It's hard to ascertain um, this sort of surreptitious um, blanketing of, of college campuses. Uh, it's kind of hard to ascertain just how big they are, because they come in the night, and they leave this stuff around rather than appearing, making public appearances. Um, that was the most recent incident. Uh, in terms of, of 
Nazi specific, I can't really uh, recall any stories that I've done on people who identified as Nazis. Sure. Here recently, I have in the past uh, uh, the uh, the comment about seeing the the tats of the Nazis, the swastikas. I've I've been in rooms with those people as they've displayed those to me in the past, and uh, they're they're quite proud of it. But uh, there is a certain um, unwillingness to go public. And uh, some of you may have been familiar with the KUOW interview with a Nazi last fall, uh, which they took a lot of flack over. Go ahead and shame that. Yeah. yeah. We just like to run it. Oh, uh, I'm shaming that interview. Yeah. No. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> not you, not you. Gotcha. All right. Um, one of my big problems with that was that, you know, if you're going to interview a Nazi, he can't be anonymous. Yeah. I mean, that's... We, we afford anonymity very rarely in the newspaper business, uh, and it has to be a good reason, you know, a survivor of sexual assault or something like that. Um, it's not, we're not trying to protect Nazis. So, um, but, uh, I, you know, and I've heard rumors of Nazis, which we can yep. go into more later. Well, actually, one of the things I want to do is I want to kind of dive into language and differences in categorization. Okay. And so, like, we use Nazi in the title because it's short and pithy, but, like, we're talking about kind of a, a, gla a galaxy, a galaxy, sorry, of white supremacist organizations. And so, Miri, I'm wondering, can you do, like, kind of a breakdown uh, between <sighs> Nazi, white supremacist, alt-right, Neo-Nazi, like like, what do those different terms mean specifically? What do those categories and buckets mean? Yeah, so I should also say I basically have been talking with some of our experts. We have a center on extremism, and they for decades have basically been researching and tracking these kinds of groups. So I get a lot of my information from these amazing people across the country who do a lot of work on the ground and online and basically understanding the ideology that these types of groups Use and we inform law enforcement and do a lot of public awareness and education to basically shine a very bright light on them. So you are right. There are, there's a lot of kind of jargon out there, a lot of different groups. I would say white supremacists are all under a pretty big umbrella, um, subscribe to an ideology of creating, you know, a white society. They issue... Um, you know, inclusion and multiculturalism and immigration. So I feel like a lot of the ideology is pretty similar, but there are a lot of subgroups within those. The alt-right is a newer group that we've seen emerge um, in this sort of very quirky, troubling political climate over the past few years. Their figurehead is Richard Spencer, who is actually from Whitefish, Montana, and he resides there part of the year. So he's actually in our greater Pacific Northwest region. Um, I think one difference you'll see between the alt-right and maybe some of the traditional white supremacist groups is that they really, like you were saying, kind of try to sugarcoat a lot of their ideology. They're not really out there with huge, you know, swastika tattoos and um, kind of, you know, they try to blend in with society. Like, I think one thing that was so shocking to people in Charlottesville about, you know, obviously the horrible nature of it, how shocking it was, someone, you know, 
died because of these hateful protests, but just seeing people who looked so normal in normal clothing as opposed to skinheads or, you know, people with tons of tattoos. So I do think a big piece of it is, you know, they don't use the type of really racist language that you've always heard. They don't have, you know, really overt symbols and things like that, but they do subscribe to a political ideology that really tries to elevate, you know, whiteness and, and the, the purity of that. Um, so what else is there? Neo-Nazis really glorify Hitler in that kind of World War II-esque, you know, wonderful time of the world. Um, I can really, like, I have this whole page of definitions here that I can really go into, but I think a lot of these groups are very interconnected, and we can, like, send out some concrete definitions after That'd people dope. want. That'd be dope. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the history of white supremacy in this region of the world? Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. Like, there's, it, 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 white supremacy in the Northwest is as old as humanity in the Northwest. Well, sorry, non-native humanity in the Northwest. So I think what's interesting in talking to some of our experts is that as someone new to the region, it really stands out as a place that seems to have so many white supremacists. And I notice it so much. And obviously, I'm working in a field where we get calls all the time by people who have seen incidents of discrimination or hate. So it definitely seems magnified for my role. But what our experts really said to me is, you really have to look at the wider United States. The Pacific Northwest certainly is a unique area where there are a lot of white supremacist groups and leaders, but this is a problem in every community across the country, and you will find white supremacists in every neighborhood and every community across the country. But I think what is unique to our region is basically, we have had white supremacists here since we can't even, you know, basically pinpoint when they got here, but we can say in the early 1900s, um, there was basically the sec second iteration of the KKK in the Pacific Northwest. And more recently, what we've seen is two specific individuals, one in the 1970s and then one in the 1980s. In the 1970s, Richard Butler um, founded a group, and he, I need to look up my notes, um, he came in the 1970s, and it was a big shift because he basically moved from California to northern Idaho, and he encouraged a lot of people to move to this area who basically wanted to see, um, you know, a region that was full of whiteness where there weren't a, a large minority population, and he founded the Aryan Nation, which was based in northern Idaho. So the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, don't want to get shamed, and the Southern Poverty Law Center, <laughs> um, it's really scary. Um, actually, That was pro, by the way. That was I know, like I know. I'm really scared. Okay. Um, we actually did some litigation together so that um, they would actually not have access to their compound, and we won. So we did some work around that in the 70s. And then in the 1980s, one of the... Um, pretty prominent white supremacist leaders who was a neo-Nazi, Robert Matthews, he founded a group called The Order, and it was a really militant group that used violence, armed robberies, assassinations, all those types of things. And he had a shootout with the FBI, in which he was killed on Whidbey Island. But one interesting thing today is that every December, they actually come together annually on Whidbey Island still, and all of these neo-Nazis congregate and honor their leader who was, you know, who passed away in this shootout. So it's something that the ADL has tracked for a long time. We've worked with law enforcement to basically track and identify every single person who attended this kind of rally because a lot of them um, are potentially very violent 
people in the community. So I don't, so I do think we have a unique history of white supremacy in this region. And I'm happy to talk a little bit now or later about sort of what it looks like today. Girl, do you. Go ahead. I'm over here. Whatever you want. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So today, like you were saying, we have a lot going on in our region, unfortunately. Identity Europa is one of the groups that is the most active in our region, and they are flyering a ton on college campuses. We'll show you a screenshot, but basically we have experts at our Center on Extremism that monitor them on social media. And every time that they put something up at Eastern Washington University and Tacoma Community College just today, UW Tacoma, UW Seattle, I mean really all across the state and all across the region, they go at night, they put up these flyers with nice looking white people and they have these slogans that they use. And you know, we basically track these incidents and catalog them to make sure that law enforcement and campus officials and students are aware of what's going on. So that is one major group. We have a bunch of different white supremacist groups that operate here, and they operate in other places as well. But I think- Can I pause you for one second? Because you don't see behind you right now. Yeah. We have up the Southern Poverty Law Center map. Yeah. Stephen, just going to call, Stephen, can you, yep, um, go to sort by all, nope, says state, go to Washington, please. And so, yeah, according to their tally, there are currently 26 hate groups operating in Washington state. Um, and one thing I'll point out is, is that this also includes uh, what they call black nationalist groups. But yeah, there's 20, the 26, 29. Anyway, there's more than two dozen hate groups operating currently in our state, in our state alone. Yeah, so you'll see there the Hammerskins. Those are the folks that like to go to Whidbey Island to honor Robert Matthews. Truce Cascadia is like a pretty local group. So we have national groups, local groups. It really runs a gamut. But two particular people are very notorious in this region, particularly for being, you know, very well-known white supremacist leaders. One of them is Jimmy Marr, who is incredibly anti-Semitic, and he basically drives this truck around Oregon that spews the most hateful messages you've ever seen. We have a lovely picture of his car that he parked um, in Corvallis, Oregon, outside of the campus at, um, at Oregon State University. And then back one slide. It's really upsetting, but I think this just gives you a picture of what some students are seeing on campuses. Um, well, and, and it's, it's worth pointing out, like this isn't driving through rural, like yeah. this is this is on a college campus so, in Corvallis, Oregon. Yeah. So he's pretty notorious, and then Richard Spencer, who I mentioned, who is the you know, poster child of alt-right is also really heavily associated with Whitefish, where there was a really serious um, incident in 2016, which I can go into a little later. So it's interesting that our region has some really notorious white supremacist folks here who are overseeing a lot of, you know, the development of ideology and recruitment and all of their tactics. Craig, you mentioned, thank you for all of that. Yeah. Craig, you mentioned earlier on your most recent story was a story about the midnight cowardly postering of campuses. Uh, what are some other stories you've written about or other incidents you've covered? Well, um, <clears throat> you know, the group that's been in the news a lot, and um, as Mary was saying, it's it's a continuum. So I'm, I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'll just, you know, throw their name out there, but it's Patriot Prayer. Um, Patriot Prayer's founder, Joey Gibson, uh, uh, describes himself as, I believe, part Asian, and there's a lot of people of color in his group. Uh, But the group is 
uh, very pro-Christian and anti-Muslim. And uh, I've had a couple conversations with Mr. Gibson, short ones. Um, he says he operates independently. He's trying to upset Maria Cantwell. Uh, he's running for Senate right now. Um, I'm not quite sure where to, maybe Mary would be better able to, their ideology is very, he's, he has, he embraces many conservative values. Um, I don't necessarily think racism is one of them, though he has expressed sympathy for white nationalists. So there is some sort of crossover there. And their group are, is the one that uh, has protested in Seattle. It's the one that protested at um, Evergreen State College in Olympia. They've held some rallies in Portland. Um, they call them freedom rallies. Their tactics, I think, are very interesting. Uh, they espouse nonviolence. Their sort of stated poster enemy is Antifa or Antifa, however you pronounce that. Um, they like to get attacked, physically attacked, uh, and then uh, post video of, of the attacks on social media uh, to sort of switch the narrative that they're the victims, they're the oppressed, um, and uh, they are probably the most active nationalist group in the region, I would say. Uh, so I've done several stories uh, about them in their various appearances in our area. One of the things that I notice is, is that there is kind of a sliding scale of like mindless, awful bigot, where like yeah. you're anti-Muslim in public and then like anti-Semitic in private conversations, which really means you're anti-black in private, but you don't say that publicly. And so what that's allowing though is like a mainstreaming of white identity politics into uh, conservative politics and national politics. And even the fact that like right now we have all these euphemisms like white nationalists and white identity politics, like these, they're fucking racist. So, uh, <laughs> sorry mom. Uh, what I, I'd like to pose to both of you is how has the activity of white supremacists, white nationalists, neo-Nazi, alt-right racist bigots, how has it changed, morphed uh, post-election? Like what's happened post-election? Uh, you know, there's two, uh, if we're talking about the president. We must, yes. Um, there's two defining moments for me. One was when he came down on that escalator and then proceeded to call Mexicans rapists and murderers, but, uh, you know, uh, saved a few. He assumed that there was a few good ones. That set the tone for, for President Trump, the can or Trump the candidate. Um, many of his supporters said, well, when he gets elected, he'll act more presidential. He'll disavow that sort of rhetoric. Uh, and then Charlottesville happened, uh, in which he stated that there are very fine people on both sides of, of that day. Um, Mr. Trump has gone on to disavow David Duke, but David Duke was there in Charlottesville that day. And David Duke and uh, former grandmaster is what they're called at the KKK, um, seized on Trump's words and embraced them. Uh, I'm not saying that it's a two-way street, but um, he, he and others of his kind took those comments as approval. And uh, whether Mr. Trump intended that or not, I don't know. But um, it certainly has set a tone when you, the most powerful man on the planet uh, is, is making these sorts of statements. It, 
I mean, how could it not influence people? Miri, how about you here in the Northwest? I mean, I agree. I think we are seeing white supremacists emboldened like never before. I think, you know, we often get the question, you know, did Trump create this phenomenon? I mean, white supremacists were, were, were truly here in the Pacific Northwest for decades. The difference is, you know, we used to monitor them in like private online chat rooms, and today they are proud and they're out there, and they are, you know, espousing their views on Twitter and Facebook and social media, and they're feeling like they've gained mainstream acceptance, what they think, which is really, really troubling. And I think for many of them, they view the president as the knight in shining armor in their fight against multiculturalism and diversity and, and so many of the values that we hold dear. And we're coming off a political campaign where, you know, there was so much vitriol and, you know, misogyny and racism and all of these things. So I think it is really affecting public discourse and really scary that a lot of these groups and these leaders feel like they can be so out there and they're proud of what they're doing and they're not ashamed. You sent me one image that was just, too, it was too compressed for me to use, yeah. but it was of a banner drop that happened here in the Northwest, here in Tacoma. Yeah. And so essentially there's two groups that are operating here in Tacoma specifically. There's a group called the Proud Boys uh, who have taken to meeting at various bars around town. They've been photographed at, what's that crappy place uh, by Wright Park? Nope, the other crappy one. Hobnob. Hobnob, there we go. Um, uh, I'm gonna just have y'all go ahead and take a seat. Like I said, they've been photographed having meetings at the Hobnob, and they've been photographed also, uh, they went on a ferry tour, because they apparently, they were like looking at land on Vashine Island, because that's a, it's like a northern Idaho, but in the water, so. <laughs> I just traffic and facts. Yeah, I'm not wrong. Yeah. Okay, so Proud Boys are operating here as well. And then uh, recently, uh, some anarchists stepped up, stepped up and did some reporting. And so, Craig, you were talking about, we were talking about this before we started. Uh, you haven't done the reporting yet, but can you talk about what you know about the reporting the anarchists did about the group on the east side of Tacoma? Right, there's. Uh, I don't know if they're just employees, owners, I guess, owners, employees of a tattoo parlor here in town. Um, in a post on Puget Sound anarchists, uh, they made a lot of allegations against them. Uh, Matt Driscoll and myself, our columnist, are, are going to pay these folks a visit and give them a chance to uh, talk about that. Uh, and uh, because it has been semi-public, um, and I'm not uh, disparaging Puget Sound anarchists at all, but um, the way they did that post is not the way that we do our business. Uh, it was written anonymously. Uh, there were not a lot of sources as to the, as these allegations. And if we're going to be attributing some pretty hateful things, or attributing anything really to somebody, we're going to make an attempt to reach out to them and get their opinion. And I mean, they can say no comment, we don't want to talk to you, or that's wrong, or here's our side of the story. That's how we do our business, and uh, we just you know, um, don't repeat uh, things without checking them out. We, as we, uh, as a, uh, we have a saying in the business, if your mom tells you that she loves you, check it out. <laughs> There's, there's an unwritten rule. You can't make jokes on the drink. Thank you. Um, Sorry. Mary, who, who are the l largest, most active groups 
statewide, like at this moment? I would say Identity Europa is one of the most active ones that I talked about before that we've been actively tracking. I mean, there are a lot of local groups like we saw before, True Cascadia and, and Patriot Friend and some others, but that is the one that comes to mind that is doing a ton of outreach on college campuses. And we get the question a lot about why they choose to recruit there. So one thing that I often tell people is, I think one, it's kind of to push back on this idea that college campuses are these liberal bastions of multiculturalism and acceptance and diversity. So I think some of it is to push back against that, but I think they also are really finding, um, you know, trying to find students that are looking for acceptance and looking for a connection and finding kids who are, you know, vulnerable that they are, um, you know, reaching out to and making a really concerted effort to do so both online and on campuses. So I would say that is the major one that we've been tracking that's been super, super active lately. But certainly the Jimmy Mars of the world and the Richard Spencers seem to pop up in the news all the time. Today, um, there was an article that Facebook suspended Richard Spencers, several accounts that were associated with him. Um, like Mark Zuckerberg was testifying before Congress and he basically said, Facebook is not a place um, for hate groups. So they did that today following his testimony. and. Um, we've been really proud at ADL to work really closely with a lot of tech companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google and YouTube and all of them in Silicon Valley because, you know, one huge trend we're seeing is that haters are going online and finding a huge community to recruit and connect, and it's, it's really problematic. So we've been working with them to form their user agreements to help them identify what's hate speech and what's free speech and how do you balance those two values. So I think it's something really important that we need to continue invest in. So I know that's a little off topic, but no, it's, it's connected. No, and actually, you yeah. said a magic word that I wanted to ask you about next. Yeah. Um, I feel like in this conversation that's happening, there's a lot of use of the term hate speech. Yeah. And so well, let me back up. Soapbox for a minute. Uh, one of the things that makes me want to just like chew nails and then spit blood is conservatives who chirp on about like free speech being restricted, but really the only free speech they're standing up for is bigots who are attacking people of color. Uh, you use the term hate speech. Can you define that term hate speech and talk about kind of the where hate speech sits in the uh, protected speech conversation in politics? Because I think a lot of people actually misunderstand that. That is an amazing question. I can't say I have the answer. We worked really closely in Washington State a couple of years ago when we basically um, were crafting some of our laws around like hate crimes and malicious harassment, which is what we call it in Washington State. But I'll definitely have to ask my counsel um, like sort of what those lines are. But I, we can send that out. Yeah. And then one, and by the way, if you have questions on index cards, go ahead and get them in because we're going to break after this question. Uh, one thing that concerns me is, is I feel like there's a wave of 16 to 27-year-old angry, isolated white males who are just eating all of this online via YouTube that nobody's paying attention to, who are getting ready to like burst onto the political mainstream in like the next decade or so. And so... Well, I was going to add to what Miri was talking about with yeah, the please. college campuses. Um, Following Charlottesville, the story was was big in the area. I'm sure some of you are familiar with it, but um, one of the protesters, uh, or one of the marchers, right. I should say, right. was James Alsop, who uh, was uh, the president of the Washington State uh, Wazoo's uh, College Republicans. 
Uh, and he resigned right after being identified as a participant in the, in the white nationalist rally in Charlottesville. So it's happening here in our state. Uh, I, it's, it's always dangerous to, to look at an anecdote and say, you know, an epidemic is underway. But I don't know. I don't know how big it is. We also were tracking um, a student body rep, student representative at, um, I think it was Oregon State, who was basically in cahoots with Jimmy Marr, and they had this big effort to like blanket all of these cars on college campuses with really racist, vitriolic flyers. He marched with them in these kind of Nazi-like, um, you know, rallies that they held in the area, and now he's actually being charged um, with some sort of like hate-related crime and activity. But it definitely is interesting to see kind of these things popping up in like the leadership of student groups and college campuses. And obviously, it's really concerning as we look to the future of politics. Well, and, and the point you're both making is, is that these white nationalists and white supremacists are trying to embed themselves in traditional organizations to mainstream in their ideas. So the president of the College Republicans, uh, there's a report that the Southern Poverty Law Center did about white supremacists trying to get involved in like rural law enforcement. And don't get me started on rural law enforcement. All right, uh, I want to, before the depression hits the entire room, I want to ask kind of like one question for you. Uh, what should concerned do-gooder, uh, progressive, thoughtful people in a very warm room do. So for the, for the hundreds in attendance and the thousands watching at home, uh, what should they, like, when, when they see white supremacist literature, when they see uh, posts online, like from the point of view of the ADL, what should they do? Call me. <laughs> Call you. <laughs> Call you. I mean, I think it's important for us all to find our voice in this, to be activists, take a picture, post it on Facebook, send it to law enforcement, send it to the ADL. We track every single leafleting incident, swastika you see on the wall, incidents in schools, all of that stuff. We, we track it, we publish data, we educate the public about what's going on. But yeah, this is a depressing topic. It's a tough one, but I honestly think that one big thing that's missing from the conversation. It's a focus on hate groups and their activity in the political environment. But there is so much that we can do on the education front, I think, in schools when kids are really little. Um, we you know, have this program, No Place for Hate. There are a lot of amazing programs that people run in schools. But people aren't born hating people. People learn to hate other people. And I think hate can be unlearned, as one of my colleagues say. So I do think, as cliche as it sounds, you need to start young and teach kids that there's this continuum and sometimes like bias and jokes and little things can snowball and, and be much greater. So I do think if we teach kids, you know, about what harassment and bias looks like, we give them the tools to actually connect to each other, to appreciate the values of diversity, to call it out when they're seeing something wrong. I really think that we can build a much better community. Okay. Wrong hand. Craig, do you want to add anything? Uh, no, except call me. Um, we, you know, we, uh, I'm just a conduit. Uh, if, if we, and uh, lots of times the public thinks we have a crystal ball, we know everything that's going on, we don't, believe me. We rely on folks calling me, uh, tweeting at us, tipping us off. If you see something, it, it may be a story, it may not be a story, it doesn't matter, just shoot me a note, shoot me a line. You can find me easy on 
on the interwebs. Sea Sailor on Twitter or at Sea Sailor on Twitter. Yep. Sea mm-hmm. Sailor at thenewstribune.com. And also like. one more thing. I mean, don't turn a blind eye. A lot of these really crazy hate crimes, allegations, and crimes we've heard of lately happen in the public in common places like a parking lot in, you know, a community center or, you know, on a commuter train. I mean, we've just heard a lot of stories about, you know, incidents against, you know, people of the Muslim community or people perceived as being Muslim, where there's been a lot of escalation into hateful rhetoric, into something really violent in which people were killed or stabbed to death or wounded. So I think it's really important as bystanders to not be bystanders, to be active, to notify law enforcement, to get involved, and to just be an active member of the community. So I heard don't be a bystander, instead stand up. So we're going to take a seven-minute break. In that seven minutes, I want you to get questions in on index cards, get questions in via Twitter, uh, empty your bladder in the single bathroom, and I'm going to grab a Periline IPA. We'll be back. Seven minutes. Uh, uh, So we're going to... We have a lot of questions. Um, And there's a lot of, like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we need to do? And so I'm just going to just, before we get to that question, what do we need to do, I'm just going to say this, is that the work of deconstructing white supremacy and ending white supremacy does not belong to black America or brown America or Muslims or anybody else. And I was really intentional in building my panel today that I didn't want to re-traumatize people of color and have them sit up here and talk about this. And one person who meant well said, why don't you reach out to a, one of the white supremacists have them on stage? And I'd rather be smacked by my mother in public than give them a platform. And so I would say to you, like, that, that nephew you have who, like, is getting angry politically, like, the, the work is conversations. And the work is conversations at the Thanksgiving table and at the dinner table and at the and at the and at the. And those conversations are going to be acrimonious and they're going to be painful. And like you're not going to convince them in the first try or the second try. But like those conversations like have to happen. And like the burden is on y'all and not on us. And y'all know what I mean by y'all and us in this room. So with that bit of commentary there, sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. Uh, we're now going to go to Q&A, and we have a lot of questions. And this is the fun part where Lindsay gets to read questions, and I get to lean back and snicker at how hard these are for our guests. They're not always that hard. Hi, everybody. Lindsay Stevens. I have the questions. What I want to let you know is that I do try to group the questions. That's part of the moderation, because a lot of us have questions that come from um, certain experiences. So if we don't specifically read your question, I hope you know we are trying to address it. And if it's not addressed in the end, maybe we can loop back around. How, so I'm going to do the first one, which felt like maybe an easy one, but sometimes I, I really don't know what I'm talking about. So here we go. The first one is, does the ADL track the Oath Keepers, and what is their role within this topic? Wait, first, can we define who the Oath Keepers we are? We should shame bell me for reading that question, I guess. I, I, have, I, I can down if you'd like. Can. So the yeah. So can I go? You, oh, please. Oh well, hey, oath keepers are uh, frequently show up at uh, Joey Gibson's rallies. Um, they are very they're very Second Amendment pro gun rights oriented. Um, I was just reading their uh, rhetoric today, as a matter of fact. Um, very uh, demonizing the left. Uh, in the context that the left demonizes the right. It's this weird, curious circle of trying to, trying to victimize. Uh, they're claiming that they're the victims, and uh, 
everyone's out to get them and uh, very nationalistic uh, group. Variants open carry demonstrations. And so one of the things that Oath Keepers do is like they believe they have an oath to the Constitution. Uh, a lot of them are ex-military like nationalists. And so that's part of their thing. And so they do open carry demonstrations. Uh, they've offered to do like volunt So when Trump was going through the primary process, uh, they showed up and did like a voluntary security cordon at the RNC. Like they're just the like... I was in the military when I was younger and fitter, and I like guns, and I don't like other folks, and so here I go. So I'm not I, wrong. My, I don't know. No, if, you're not. Yeah. yeah. The question none, is, do you track them? None, I'm not. No, I'm not ab shaming, but none of them have abs. Continue. So I can't say definitively because I don't think oathkeeper activity has come up a lot recently. But the answer is yes. We do track really all hate groups under the sun, and I would imagine that they are part of the milieu of whatever we do. So happy to always follow up with more information and send out more if people want that. And, and there were Oath Keepers at Charlottesville, by the way. Thank you. Okay, so now I have a question. Is a, What about the FBI study that showed law enforcement has been infiltrated by white supremacists? Is this a thing that is a thing that we know of? I have know of no credible sources it's that. It's covered by PBS. It's covered by the Washington Post. Hmm. Has it? Hmm. Um, the link was tweeted. I don't know. All right. Well, then I guess you, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I've seen mention of it, but I really haven't looked into this. So I can jump in here. This is something. So there's basically been a kind of long-term effort by white supremacists to infiltrate law enforcement organizations. I mentioned earlier rural police organizations and also the military. And so, uh, like, they, they are there in those organizations. I'm not saying they're running those organizations, but, like, there are white supremacists who are, like, operating in law enforcement agencies all over the United States, for sure. And that's not like, a, oh, hey, I ended up here. It's, like, the same reason why I teach. Like, they want to change the world, but for the worst. And we have rep heard reports from people on the ground about some potential white supremacist groups possibly being in law enforcement, but I don't know if we've ever... Um, you know, certified that it was credible. Margaret, will you DM me that link and I'll bump it's it up? Okay, perfect. All right, thank you. Okay, um, this one is asking if the panelists or organizers can talk about the connection between big R racism and the polite Pacific Northwest I don't see color racism <laughs> and the t-shirts that people let high schoolers wear and how to challenge ourselves. What are you looking at? Them. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, as part of my job, non-journalism job, I was a diversity trainer for a good number of years. Um, and boy, if you want to uh, learn about the way white people perceive race, spend a couple of days locked in a room with them every few months. Um, one of the things I heard over and over again was, you know, the uh, person that would say, I don't see color. I don't see color. What color are you? I don't see color. Um, and those folks would get pushed back from the other group, the other people in our group. Um, it is, uh, I guess it's sort of a, uh, a tendency to, uh, if you can create your own reality around you, then that will just extrapolate through the rest of the world, uh, regardless of other people's realities and truths. Um, I, a lot of what I have covered in my job is white privilege, which I don't think we've, we've mentioned today. Um, I just, uh, I'm gonna butcher her name. 
but I just interviewed uh, Ijeoma Alua. Okay. Um, Solid pronunciation, my friend. Solid pronunciation. Continue. (laughs) Um, And we talked a bit about that. We talked quite a bit about that. And um, uh, it is, and I've I've written about a white church over on uh, uh, Fox Island, 99% white, that was trying to teach itself about white privilege. Um, And uh, let me tell you, it's a tough it's a tough message to get across. And I think if, and I could obviously expand more on that, but I think the way to answer the questioner's question is uh, start there, start with white privilege, um, and you will make great inroads against the small R or big R? Small R, small R, yes. Uh, one thing I'll add really fast, when people do the I don't see color thing, I just always say, but your clothes match. Yeah. <laughs> do you wanna add anything? I think I would yeah, just right. add. <laughs> you know. Yeah, sometimes they don't, but just. They have bad fashion and problems. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think at the ADL, we work in really diverse places, whether it's workplaces or schools or training law enforcement. I mean, it really kind of runs the gamut. And I, I just think it's ridiculous to say we don't all harbor biases because we do. And I think it's something that, you know, we can be um, transparent about and honest about, and it's something people want to work on. Right. Okay, so the whole bunch of rest of these are a lot about, like, what do we do? So I'm going to lump them a little bit. So I have two that I'm going to read it back to back because I am making the assumption that they are sort of the same thing. So this one is how are young white men or... Yeah, how are young white men being recruited or groomed by local white supremacist organizations? And kind of the follow-up question is, what are the look-fors? How do we stop them? And there's also a, when I was in high school in California, in the Coeur d'Alene training camp, recruited at the high school with flyers offering $5,000 to kids willing to engage. I'm assuming that those were young white men. That was an assumption I'm making. And what are the best practices to combat? So again, when we see populations that we know might be targets for these groups, what are the grown-ups around them? What do we do, and how do we look for it happening? This is definitely a Miri question. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I've had the experience now working for the ADL where I've been contacted by you know a parent whose 15-year-old white son, you know, is really susceptible to this kind of ideology that's been engaging online. You know, a mom that's obviously very freaked out about her son and the kind of values and the people that he's associating himself with. You know, I think there are ways to start young with kids. So we have these important conversations early on and teaching them important values and giving them the actual tools to be accepting um, and respectful of diversity. And I think there are also organizations out there in ways that, you know, if you identify somebody that might be, you know, leaning towards this kind of thinking and might be going in a certain way, there are actually former white supremacists who are really amazing that we work with at ADL, and they talk about, you know, who they are and why they were attracted to these kinds of groups, and they have, like, these 24-7 text and chat lines that people can talk with them, and they can really help people who are younger and vulnerable out of these situations. So I think there are resources at the disposal um, of the community. So kind of as a follow-up, I'm thinking that this is, now I'm a grown-up and maybe I don't have young children in my life, but they're still asking how do we interrupt and expose hate groups if we can identify them, if we're talking about not in the context of 
children. Um, there is a point I'd like to make. This is my own categorization, but one that I've come up with over the years, and it's a little bit simplistic, but there's, there's sort of, uh, for, the, for my purposes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, put, I'm gonna put these groups into three, three categories. Uh, one is uh, the, uh, the person who might or might not have an ideology, but exploits the fears and ideologies out there to for monetary gain, basically, uh, you know, uh, making a buck over uh, on pe based on people's fears. And these are people who might say propose an initiative and uh, appoint themselves president of the company and get a big salary from donations as they, uh, you know, extol and direct mail mailings about whatever subject it is that they're trying to engender fear over. Um, another group would be, uh, or a person I should say, is the uh, proverbial 38-year-old who lives in his mother's basement and has no friends and uh, has a lot of hate and runs some sort of website uh, in which he's out there spreading ideology. And then the third group would be maybe the true ideologues, the the people who spend all their waking moments and don't get paid for it, but are, are pushing whatever ideology, hate-centered ideology that they uh, are uh, truly, truly uh, married to. I, I'm always interested as a journalist is what are the people's true motivations? You know, it's, it's not enough just to get in arguments. Uh, I, I, I think sometimes think Twitter arguments are like arguing with a paragraph rather than a person. Uh, who are these people? What are they? Tr what's their true motivation? What's sometimes it's hard to ascertain, but um, once you can sort of uh, dismantle the the people behind these arguments, it's you know that old adage, "Know thine enemy." It you know it's it makes it easier. I, I, I don't have I can't give any specific answers, but it certainly makes it easier to come up with a plan when you when you know the motivations of of these folks. I mean, I think it's multiple things. First of all, I think showing up today and a willingness to be educated and aware of what's going on is really important. So you probably know more than most of your friends in the population. I think it's just important to not only get educated, but get involved and, and think about what you can all do in your lives as individuals and maybe be part of organizations like ADL or other community organizations that are doing really important work in different areas of the community. You know, we do a lot of work to educate and bring awareness um, about hate groups. You know, the work that you do to support ADL goes to a lot of really important services and programs that we bring to the community. So I think it's really important to, you know, get involved to the extent you can, whether it's like posting something on social media, attending a local program, learning about it, actually getting involved in kind of like the nuts and bolts about how you bring a program to more people in your community. And I think it's just really important to shine a bright spotlight on these incidents when they do occur, to think about, you know, oh, I saw something troubling my neighborhood, let's snap a picture, send it to law enforcement, the local police, send it to groups like ADL that care about this issue so that more people can be aware of what's going on. So I think there are all ways that we can get involved. I don't think there's one clear-cut answer, but I think showing up today is really important. I, I, I want to address something that came up earlier on really fast. The hobnob's not that good. And like, <laughs> like, it's not. Like, if I'm doing like my brunch rankings, like hobnob's like solid like 
13th. Like, it's not that good. And I'm not sorry, either. About the hobnob? No. <laughs> Thanks for letting me ask this. The reason I wanted to ask it is because um, what I'm thinking about in terms of the hobnob and people saying like, oh, the hobnob is pretty cool, is that if we know of a place where they are allowing folks to have meetings there, then it sounds like that's probably what we would need to focus on. And is it that good that we need to go there, even if those meetings are happening? That's kind of the connection I was thinking. Yes, Don't answer that yet, because it goes in the pile. She's got it. No, I didn't. You sounded articulate. Hang on. Hang on, hang on, because I have these all in my hand and I think that that's like the same diff, right? So, so people are asking like, is it best to support Target, confront the perpetrator? Then we have like, is boycotting, boycotting Starbucks an appropriate response to the Philadelphia incident? So I think it's the same, like, how do we focus in as opposed to focus out when it comes to like businesses in our community and where we know people are going? That's kind of what you're asking, right? Like, so there's the Starbucks and the Hobnob and Dorkies, like all the stuff. So. Fuck Dorkies. Sorry. I, what? Sorry. <laughs> that, but that's what we're saying. Can you speak to that? Like, what? So all of these are like, what do we do? <laughs> I think it's a really salient point. There is a really important need for businesses, especially local businesses. And I think the Pacific Northwest, a lot of groups do a really good job of taking this on. There are a lot of local restaurants and bars that like really support community groups. I feel like I've asked many in the Seattle area like for a free space, and I've never gotten a no. So I do feel like you're right that there's a really important place for business in talking about their values and promoting diversity and stopping hate and putting a sign in their window and whatever that might be. I also think it's important to like sometimes give the benefit of the doubt and to learn a little bit more before kind of like trying to boycott something. We had a very recent incident in Portland where there was a man who was wearing a Luftwaffe shirt that was questionably associated with um, the German Air Force, but diners at the restaurant thought that basically they were allowing a white supremacist to eat there and, and openly enjoy the food. So it just created this really huge problem for this business that was run by a Jewish woman who's grandparents were Holocaust survivors and her Latino husband, and it created a lot of angst for this family business that really cared about being good stewards for the community and was a place that totally was into diversity. So I would say I think there also is a place to play, though, if we know that businesses are allowing this kind of activity to happen. And these are groups that are hateful and shouldn't be allowed to convene in these kinds of places. So I think there are sometimes tricky things about the law and like convening, but I think if you know you have tips about local groups or there are things that ADL can look into and investigate, it's definitely worth doing because we want to know, you know, we want businesses to be um, held accountable for how they conduct themselves and to not only care about their bottom line but to have value. So I think you know a couple of dimensions to it, but I think they have a really important role to play in this kind of work. I would just add the city of Tacoma isn't that large. And so there's like a, a, a torrent of, fo of phone calls from polite white people uh, to businesses makes a huge difference, frankly. And I would say another thing is, is so I have a philosophy about like when you see abuse online, like your first priority is to reinforce the humanity of the victim. 
and your second priority then is to go after the perpetrator. And so if you see online harassment, first you reaffirm the humanity of the victim, and then you report the perpetrator, and then if you're the kind of person that like gets in tete-a-tete with people, then you bicker it out after you report them. So it's comfort, report, then bicker. Okay, and I think that that helps. I mean, I was, yeah, right? I was about to say the same thing that Nate said, like, Tacoma's like a big, small city, right? We can always find that, like, degree of separation to say, did you know, and give those business owners the opportunity to be like, no, and I will fix it, or yep, and whatever, and then you're like, and now we don't go there anymore. You know what I mean? Like, there's always that place for conversation. So, um, this one has a bit, but it's really kind of like, for neo-Nazi celebrations on Whidbey Island, are there organi- is anyone organizing counter-protests? Is that something we would show up to? Also, like, Identity Europa issued any statements? What are their goals? How do we combat? So they're really wondering about um, kind of like that real movement, get involved, is if this is something people want to do, how would they find out? Are there groups out there that are combating that publicly? Well, uh, a little bit. I guess I can speak on that. I, you know, I, I, I certainly, as a journalist, I can't give advice on uh, how to protest or when to protest. But um, from a legal standpoint, if, you know, um, there's private and there's public. And um, there is a, a line that separates the two. Um, and if a group wants to meet privately to discuss their philosophies uh, on private property out of the eye of the public, uh, they certainly are entitled to do that. Uh, where it crosses the line, where we would cover it, uh, is if we were invited onto the property to observe it, or if there was, a, if it became public knowledge and there was counter-protesters out on the public street. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm just here to cover it, folks. I mean, I, I, at ADL, you know, we don't necessarily engage in people who are potentially violent at protests or rallies, but I definitely do think there are times to organize and for members of the community to come together around important moments. Hopefully, they'll be proactive and positive um, and not associated with any kinds of violence, but I think maybe it's a case-by-case basis situation. Would I suggest, you know, going to protest the neo-Nazis at Whidbey Island, it's not really something that I would encourage people to do. Um, but there are certainly, you know, some groups in the Pacific Northwest, like Antifa groups, that are sort of like these anti-fascist groups that are, um, you know, also feeling emboldened and going to counter-protest white supremacist groups. So there are a lot of interesting elements and developments in some of the, um, you know, more extreme groups to the right and the left. But I personally would advise people to be positive and proactive and signs of unity and to also be there when there's something to complain about and there's always, you know, a way to be against something but in a safe and, you know, productive way. Well, I have just, like... Go for it. This last one. Go for it. It says that we know that as black people we're walking in white spaces and we have to prove that it's okay for us to be there. So what do we think white allies can do when they see these sort of moments? Hashtag Starbucks. Yeah. Like, what is that? Yeah, I mean, like, tell, but, okay. Yeah. 
in, in stepping out of my journalist role, in diversity training, we talked a lot about daily indignities. Um, and it's these little uh, things that perhaps as white people we don't notice that people of color have to put up with on a daily basis. Um, I think opening your eyes to this, um, being observant, uh, correcting changing behavior, uh, making spaces welcoming for all people. Um, you know, you, Nate just alluded to, to Starbucks, which is a very uh, strong example of differential treatment. Uh, but that's, that's the stuff that gets the big news. It's the little stuff every day, and all those add up for, for minority groups. Um, you know, uh, for gay people walking down through Tacoma Mall, um, holding hands can be considered provocative and uh, an act of defiance. When to us, we just want to hold our boyfriend's hand or our girlfriend's hand. Um, making safe spaces, yeah. making safe spaces for, for people is really important. I got, you got the last one, I'm out. I actually want to tackle this last question in love. And so like, if what I, says come across, if what I say here comes across as like harsh, I don't intend it to, but like facts is facts. Uh, so the question that came in is, do identity politics do more to empower or divide us? All politics are identity politics, okay? And so the thing is, is, is if you are part of a majority group, then your politics are the default and you view everybody else's politics as identity politics. And so this is the entire, like, like, like the core of the, of the uh, debate right now between uh, Ezra Klein and Sam, and Sam Harris is happening online right now. There's on the far political right and the far political left, there's a decrying of identity politics. The idea that like we are divided into subgroups, well, black politics and Black Lives Matter and LGBT issues and whatever else. Right, but all politics are identity politics, but if you belong to the majority, you have the privilege of having your politics always be the default. And so when you hear people talk about identity politics, I just encourage you to just hit them with that, please. All politics are identity politics, but if you belong to the majority, your politics are the politics of the default. The entire Trump administration is affirmative action for white people. Right. And like, that is just like the thing we have to get our head around. And before I have another one of those rants, I'm gonna end this. So, I wanna thank you for coming out tonight. Why the videos? Why the videos? Damn it. Sorry, sorry, the video. How do we make sure we're uh, proactive and not reactive? Any feedback on that? And then you can end with your Fine. No, show the video. Oh, that's right. Repeat the question. So the question that was posed is, how do we make sure as people that we're proactive and not reactive? I've given my two cents, and actually, you know what? I've given my two cents about how to like engage with online harassment, and I think, honestly, my online, online harassment advice applies to real life. You comfort the victim, affirm their humanity first, and then, then report the perpetrator, and then bicker. Uh, Besides, but, but that is still reactive. How do you be proactive instead of reactive? I'll let you two go. How do I be proactive rather yep. than reactive? Um, edu you can't be proactive if you don't understand the situation, the environment. You have to do the work. Uh, and, and of course, I'm talking to white people, I'm talking to straight people, I'm talking to middle class folks, uh, everyone who's in the, the ruling class, as it were. Um, Educate yourself. Educate about yourself for people uh, who are not in your group. And only then are, are your eyes going to be opened. 
Uh, and then you can be proactive rather than simply bouncing off the walls in a reactive mode. And then you're up. I think you're right. You don't have to wait to make change. You don't have to wait till there is an incident in a school in which there's an act of racism to bring a program like No Place for Hate to school. You don't have to wait till a terrible hate crime happens in the community for you to get involved on civil rights issues or in advocacy or meeting with a local legislator or a member of Congress or whatever. I think there are so many simple ways that people can just get involved and plug into smart you know, community groups that have been doing this work for a long time. So. There's no need to wait. So I started wrapping up prematurely. Something I forgot. If people want to support the work at the ADL, what should they do or what can they do? Um, we're at ADL Seattle. You know, like us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. Um, you know, go to our website, seattle.adl.org. Just get my contact info. I'd love to follow up with you. We're very Seattle-centric. We need to be much, you know, we need to be... Um, more representative in, you know, the greater Seattle area and Tacoma and so many neighborhoods in the Pacific Northwest where we just have not been. So, I, you know, it's an open invitation. Learn more, connect. I would love to get involved and, you know, just kind of lay out some options for each of you depending on your time and your availability. And I didn't want to end on a down note because I know this is kind of a hard conversation. So we have a really cool video that we did. We're, we're trying to get it up. We're trying to get it up. But we actually had to go to um, Yoko Ono and we asked her for the rights to the Imagine um, song that John Lennon wrote. And it's a pretty cool video that talks about what a world would look like without hate. Okay. And wait, so, before we go to the video really fast, little Steven, teaser. Uh, I need to just point out personally, this is the ninth Adult Civics Happy Hour we've had, and we've had a news streaming reporter at five of them on the panel. Uh, in the same way we talked about supporting local, supporting the ADL, support local media. Uh, like uh, the, the, the News Tribune reporters, the News Tribune is not perfect. I wish they did a lot more things than they do and wish and wish and wish and wish. But, but, but if we don't support them, if we don't support them, they will go away entirely. And so support local media because folks who have... Folks who want to do very, very bad things like are very excited about the end of local media because they want to operate in the dark. All right, inspiration. I want to thank you for coming out tonight. I want to thank our guests from the uh, from the ADL. I want to thank our guests from the News Tribune. Thank all of you for coming out. Uh, our next of happy hours in June. Uh, date TBD because graduation season and all that stuff. But uh, keep an eye on the Facebook and thank you for coming out tonight. Good night. Want to learn more about life in Tacoma? Visit MoveToTacoma.com. MoveToTacoma.com. This is Channel 253.